Hello, and welcome to Straight from the Tap, a podcast about water treatment straight from the people who live it. I'm Debbie Statler, owner and publisher of Water Conditioning and Purification International Magazine, and today we are speaking with Dr. Brooke Mayer. She's an associate professor of civil construction and environmental engineering at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Her specialty is environmental engineering, and she writes the On Tap column for WCMP Magazine. Thank you, Brooke, for joining me today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's jump right in. I'll start at the beginning. Your bachelor's degree, master's, and doctorate are all in environmental engineering. How did you come to be so interested in that topic? So honestly, I didn't have a clue what engineering in general was or what environmental engineering specifically was when I first started out. But I really think that just my my childhood and how I grew up in Wyoming, we were always outdoors. We went to the lake, we went hiking, we went camping, fishing, all of that good stuff. I think it really instilled in me a, a great love of the environment that I didn't come to appreciate uh, explicitly until I was uh, later on in adulthood and thinking about degrees. And so I went to school not knowing much, started talking to some friends who did environmental engineering and thought, oh my goodness, that sounds perfect where I can apply some of the skills that I like to do with math and science, but actually put them towards some something that I'm super interested in, in terms of the environment. And so, you know, started up in that degree program, started doing some undergraduate research and figured out I loved it. And so I just kept going and, you know, they, they pretty much couldn't get me out of school. I just kept going and going and going and still in it. So obviously love it. And I'm pretty passionate about it. That's great. I love it when people have like a childhood interest and that grows into their career. I find it to be just so fantastic that you get to carry that on. Now, you've worked in several areas of water treatment, electrochemical, UV, ion exchange. What have been some of the most unusual projects? It's a good question. Um, so as I kind of mentioned a little bit, I I go from one thing to the next and I just keep learning. And so everything just sounds so fascinating when we get started off. And so I guess across all those systems, you know, when I think about it, it's kind of unusual to say, hey, we're electrocuting water, right? We're, we're throwing electricity in, which is something that they tell you not to do, and we, we do it. And so that's kind of fun. But I also think, I guess, in terms of unusual, one of the projects that my group has been working on for a while now is we call it bioinspiration, but it's looking at natural systems that do a fantastic job and thinking about how could we actually leverage them or engineer systems that either act like them or take advantage of those natural systems. And so the one that we've been using is focused on phosphorus. And so we know that phosphorus is, you know, problematic if there's too much of it in environmental systems or if we release it, for example, in wastewater at too high concentrations um, and a lot of different technologies trying to get that phosphorus out. But at the same time, uh, it's a resource that we need to have that agriculture relies on. And so we, we take this from a viewpoint of we want to have this waste and make it a resource. And so we're trying to recover the phosphorus back out of the systems. But bringing that back to bioinspiration, the way that we're looking at it is if you look at any cell, whether it's cells in our bodies or bacterial cells or wherever they're at, all of them use phosphorus and they use pretty large amounts. And so cells are 
just fabulous natural engineers at grabbing phosphorus out of systems. And so they have these great little proteins that do it, or they can just grab phosphorus kind of like a, a Venus flytrap. They snap down on it um, and then open back up and release it into the microbial organism. And so what we've done is taken these proteins and engineered them to be on surfaces. So we can kind of mess around with the DNA and put them on the surface of the cell, or we can extract the protein off and kind of stick it on like a bead and then use those proteins to do the same thing where we're letting them grab onto phosphorus and then trigger them to release it. And so we have this really nice selective and very sensitive system to get phosphorus out. So I think that's a little unusual in the approach, um, but it's been pretty fun to see how we can start to manage those systems. I love that bio inspiration inspired by nature. So clever. And I love that it sort of kills two birds with one stone. So that's, you know, the best of both worlds there. Exactly. So from all your, you know, different projects and variety of experiences, is there a takeaway from your overall experience in water treatment or, you know, a common challenge that we all face? So I would think that maybe one of the biggest takeaways for me is that water so obviously it's so important, but I think a lot of times we take it for granted in everything we do. And the need for just continuous improvement is just omnipresent. It's there. It's always pushing on us. And so I think it's important to always be forward thinking about our water systems, but also learning from what's happening in the past or what has happened. So again, thinking about things like resource recovery, or if we think about the new UN report coming out on climate change that's saying, you know, things are worse than we thought they'd be already. And so taking a lesson from that and not allowing the, the fear of that unknown to paralyze us, but to be thinking about how we can continue to improve uh, moving forward, especially as we have these, you know, kind of mega stressors like climate change, increasing population, uh, emerging contaminants, all of these things are pushing down on us, but always trying to get that step ahead and think about what can we do to improve that overall system. That's a great point, because climate change can be a hugely overwhelming topic if you think about it broadly. But to get inspired individually that you can still be taking steps and doing something along the way is super helpful. Yeah, agreed. Now, one of your articles recently for WCMP talked about the difficulty in removing PFAS from drinking water. While conventional drinking water technologies have proved to be largely ineffective, Ion Exchange has shown promise. Tell me more about that. I think in general, I am a pretty big proponent of systems that can do something that it's targeted to do, but also do it reversibly. And Ion Exchange is a, a good example of that where we can, you know, use that material to grab on to the target, in this case, PFAS, those horrible chemicals that are, are really tough to get any other way. But if we have these resins that can very selectively grab them, but then also thinking about releasing that PFAS or the target so that we can reuse it, I think that's a, a really well-designed system. And so I think that there's still a lot of the science that's out there in terms of the, the ion exchange material itself that's being developed, but to be able to have something that can be selective and then also regenerated, I think is really important, especially if we think about something like PFAS where, you know, it's not enough to just 
remove it from a system, but what do you do with that stuff afterwards? And that tends to be the most energy and chemical intensive part is actually the destructive end of it. And so if we could use something like an ion exchanger to really concentrate that material down into a smaller volume, then we can use less energy per volume type of treatment, which is still a lot. But if we think about things like incineration or electrochemical treatment, just being able to have that stuff concentrated in one area, I think is an incredible advance forward in um, trying to treat that problematic chemical. Absolutely. Being able to use things multiple times, uh, you know, recovery, reuse, all of those things, really big words that you keep hearing over and over in the water treatment industry nowadays. There's a real focus on that, on that sector. Now, one of your other most recent articles discusses the need for water sector innovation. And that's not something we talk about very much. Regulations can spur innovation. Crises can spur innovation. However, there are definitely some stumbling blocks. Inertia, fragmentation, lack of financing. How can we as an industry make progress with innovation? Yeah, I I think, like you mentioned, innovation is something that is really interesting to think about because we're, we're practicing it all the time, but how do we actually spur it on is a really big question. And I think it takes a lot of voices at the table to think about systems levels that can do that. But some of the things that kind of pop right into mind for me are, uh, you mentioned fragmentation. And I think fragmentation is a really big one. And you could define that across many different areas. So it could be fragmentation across, you know, water side of things, not talking to wastewater side of things, or uh, one city not talking to another city, or you could go to any level here. But I think that continuing to have good, solid communication as much as we can and working together across that, that's really going to be the basic heart of driving innovation. So, you know, one example that comes to mind for me is at Marquette here, we're part of a center that's from the National Science Foundation sponsored, but it's an industry university cooperative research center. And so the title of it really says the beauty is that we have industries coming together to talk to basic fundamental researchers. So it's really innovations inspired by needs that people have. And so I think crossing some of even those simple boundaries between academia and and industry is really important. You know, another example of that is the LIFT program, the Leaders Innovation Forum for Technology, which is essentially just a testbed program, but it links up, again, researchers who can try out a process or technology or system that they're working on and actually put it into play at uh, a utility and so see how it's going to work in the real world. So I think that those are really, really important things. And also just as part of that, recognizing the true value of water systems. And so making sure that we know how important they are, but then putting the investment in on the front end to make sure that we're supporting those in the future. I totally agree. Sometimes getting all of those great ideas and projects in academia and moving them into sort of everyday use and and the public's arena, you know, that can be tough. So I love that there are programs that are starting to connect those those two ends so that we can all take advantage of some of the new technologies and things of that sort. Now, one sentence in your innovation article really stuck with me. You mentioned how technology advancement is necessary, but it's not the only thing needed to move forward. Integration with institutional and social systems is also critical. And you've you've been talking about this all along today, this systems thinking that we need to have. So how do we start thinking 
on the systems level? And how do we start to, to move that integration forward? I think that's the million dollar question, right? That's a, it's a tough one, <laughs> but it's it's so important. And so being able to think about it is, is really a good thing. And I, I thank you for bringing that question up. But I think that to me, one of the first approaches towards that is simply just recognizing that it is that class of problems that, you know, water systems are a grand challenge that technology is necessary to start to address, but it's not sufficient. I think that first came out in Tragedy of the Commons, a great article a long time ago, where they're really focused on things like population and resource sharing, but it really sticks with me in terms of water. And it's interesting that I say that because I really, my focus is on the technology side of things. I'm an engineer. I like to design these systems. And I think that's an important part, but it's again, not sufficient. And so there's a couple of things where I think that we can do a better job of integrating across systems level. And one of them that comes to mind to me is simply making sure that we have the dialogue and educational systems in place so that people know more about the water system. And you know, the first one that comes to mind is thinking about the the great program that we titled Toilet to Tap. And so by doing that, pretty much uh, sunk uh, water resource recovery for a while because just didn't sound very palatable for good reason. So making sure that we're having good conversations that really explain the meanings and the purpose and the approach of things that we're doing. And the other way that I think that comes into play that I think about it a lot is uh, it's kind of a a keyword called um, convergence research. And the National Science Foundation's really been pushing this or advocating for this as one of their big ideas recently. But what it's really targeting or kind of defined as is saying that convergence research is targeting, you know, the biggest, baddest, most vexing problems that we have. They're compelling, but they need an integration of different people and different skill sets uh, and approaches to actually solve them. And so one of the efforts that I'm involved in is a center that has, you know, eight institutions across the country. And when we looked at our disciplinary expertise, it was something like 28 different disciplines, all targeting one single societal problem. And so bringing together engineers and scientists, but across the board. So scientists who are in physical sciences and plant sciences, but also social sciences and people are who are on the political sciences uh, spectrum. And so really, I think it takes bringing everybody to the table and being able to say, hey, I don't know the terminology you're using. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you tell me a little bit more? And then being able to explore that to actually put expertise in deep disciplinary uh, areas into play. Oh, I think that's just brilliant. I I can see that happening with any technology, really, any innovation, not just in water treatment, where, you know, you have the technology development, but that's not the end of the process. You still need, you know, the population to adopt it. You need legislation to support it. You need, you know, communication and and all those different pieces. So I just think that's great having everyone at the same table to talk about one issue from a different angle. That's, that's, I could see the power in that. So, Brooke, what is your favorite piece of water filtration technology? Or, or maybe which one do you consider the most interesting? And tell us a little bit about it. 
So I think that this probably changes on a day-to-day basis for me just because I like a lot of different things. So it depends what we're working on at the moment and where my mind is at. But right now, uh, one of them that I would say is the most interesting that we've been working on is kind of a, a broad selection of technologies that are encompassed in electrochemical treatment systems. Uh, So again, that aspect of putting electricity into water, but we can do it a couple of different ways where one, it depends on the electrodes that we use. And so we can use some electrodes that are either reactive or non-reactive based on whether they release chemicals into the system. And so just that part, I think is pretty cool because it gives you a lot of breadth in the things that you can treat and target. And so just by changing that system, we have a chemical free in terms of addition, but we can operate it in different ways to target just a huge, huge range of things. And so my lab group has looked at, in collaboration with others, a range range of things ranging from viruses to thinking about PFAS to organic carbon. But this single treatment technology has the power to start to tackle all of those different types of things. And so it just depends how we're um, putting it together, how we're operating it, how energy efficient it is. But I think it gives a lot of a lot of power and a lot of uh, possibilities for treatment. So du jour, that's my technology that I pick out today. Yeah, that's funny. I I agree that electricity and water don't seem like two things you should put together. However, I love how you phrased it earlier about electrocuting the water. That will definitely stick in my mind going forward. Right. (laughs) Well, let's look into the crystal ball a little bit now. What trends do you see on the horizon? Are there certain technologies or applications that you think will become more common in the next five to 10 years? So in in my crystal ball, I think that a couple of processes that I would see as becoming more commonplace are are probably membrane technology, which has made great advances in the last few decades and and gives us a lot of power in terms of using water resources that are perhaps not high enough quality to use otherwise. And so I think there's going to be huge advancements there and not only with things like seawater desalination, but also thinking about brackish water. You know, again, going back to to things like changing climate, if we think about arid southwest region of the U.S., just having some of those advancements to use uh, those water resources that aren't high quality, but can be in terms of uh, tackling the brackish problem. You know, another thing that my group has done quite a bit of work on is thinking about UV systems. And so I I really like UV. I'm from Milwaukee. And so we were the, you know, the home of the infamous cryptosporidium outbreak in uh, 93. But because of that, UV has become pretty popular system. It avoids disinfection byproducts, things that way. But I think that one aspect of that is going to advance a lot in the the coming decades, and that's the use of UV LEDs. And so if we think about how we're lighting our homes up, most of us are using LEDs now. We're like, these are great. These are fantastic. But when we look at them for the water treatment side of things, getting efficient LEDs at the wavelengths that we need for germicidal operation is just starting to be there. It's just on the horizon, but I think they have a lot of power for in the end reducing the energy inputs in the system, but we still need some tech development along the way. So those are a couple of process specific things, but I think in the bigger picture, something that I really believe is going to come on more strongly in the, in the coming years is that increasing recognition of just a one water system. Um, specifically, you know, a lot of times we like to separate and talk about drinking water versus wastewater versus whatever it is, water in the environment. And 
we know from a basic level is in elementary students were familiar with the water cycle, but when we put it to, into practice, we tend to partition and separate. And so I think thinking about things more holistically is going to be very important. And specifically on that, I think the issue of how can we better recover things uh, is going to be important. And so kind of going back to our earlier conversation of if we can get something out of a water system that is considered a pollutant in one place, but it could be recovered as a valuable resource. I think that is going to be a, a really, really important area of uh, accomplishment in the coming decades. I couldn't agree more. I think recovery and reuse is really becoming more popular. I mean, especially like in the wastewater arena where it used to be sort of specialized, but now, you know, as the Western states sort of face some water supply challenges and things of that sort, now there's more and more attention focused on it. So I love that there are some technologies, but also maybe some ways of thinking that we might need to adjust going forward. Now let's shift gears. Milwaukee is a great city on Lake Michigan. Sports, the Riverwalk, cheese curds, frozen custard. What are some of your favorite things about Milwaukee? I mean, you just nailed it, right? When you can have a city that's <laughs> known for cheese, um, but also beer and brats. It's, it's wonderful food here. But also, you know, it's so fun to get out, especially in the summer months, but to think about the sports and the activities that go on in this city and in this region, We're heading out to Green Bay a couple hours away, watching a Packers game or Brewers games. Um, so all of those are, are super fun. Also, when, you know, the summer weather gets nice, Milwaukee's really known for a lot of festivals. And so we have huge summer fest, which is a big music festival, but also pretty much any festival uh, that you could ever think of uh, at any day of the week, you can go downtown and, and check something out and get some really good food and, and really good music. So that's fantastic. And the thing that I would just close with that's really stood out to me after coming to Milwaukee is the people. You know, people kind of laugh and smile about that good old Midwestern spirit, but it's alive here. People care about each other. I have fantastic neighbors. I love the people I work with, my students. And so I think that's the thing that really stands out to me. Well, I've personally never been to Milwaukee, but it sounds like I need to put that towards the top of my list of places to visit. You are invited. I will save you a beer and some cheese curds. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deal. It's a deal. Well, Brooke, thank you for your time today to talk about innovation, water treatment, and the fun of Milwaukee. For further information on this and other industry topics, visit wcponline.com. <laughs>